Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Yang is an American singer-songwriter based in Atlanta. Born into a musical family in India, her soulful music reveals inspiration from artists such as Nora Jones and Lauren Hill. Later this hour, we'll hear from Yang as part of our series of musicians in their own words, speaking of music. First, in second grade, when other seven-year-olds were watching Scooby-Doo, Layla Felder was watching the opera La Boheme. Layla is the youngest Met Opera ambassador She's a senior at the Atlanta International School, and she has attended over a hundred operas around the world. Layla created the organization Kids Opera and Art Posse to encourage greater accessibility in the arts. This Friday, April 1st, Terence Blanchard's musical setting of Charles Blow's memoir, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, will premiere on PBS. The broadcast is part of great performances at the Met. Layla joins me now via Zoom to talk more about this opera and her life as an ambassador for the Met. Layla, welcome to City Lights. Hi, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Oh, I'm so excited to talk with you because my dear friend Gail O'Neill has been raving about you and writing about you for some years now. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, well, please tell us when your love for opera began. It started when I was two years old and I don't remember actually falling in love with it. So what I know is from what my mom told me, it just feels like I've loved it for my entire life. But I was watching Sesame Street one day and Denise Graves came on an episode and she was singing the Habanera from Bizet's Carmen to Elmo. Stars are twinkling up in the sky. It's time for you to go petty by. You're not sleepy. And I, after it was over, I turned to my mom and I said, again, mommy, again. But this was before you could rewind on like live TV. And so my mom was wondering like, what is this? And so she pulled out the DVD for the Amadeus movie and she flipped to one of the parts where they sing opera. And I wanted, I just asked her to play that part over and over and over again. And then she went, oh, okay, so my kid likes opera. Neither of my parents like opera or liked it before I started. And, you know, my mom went looking and she found the Metropolitan Opera broadcasts and she bought me La Boheme, Carmen and the Magic Flute. And I watched those DVDs every day so much when I was little. I mean, to this day, I know those operas like the back of my hand and they're still my favorite operas and my love just grew and grew and grew. 
I'm curious with your attraction to Denise Graves singing on Sesame Street, was it that you wanted to sing like her? No, it wasn't, I don't think. I mean, I still to this day, I can't sing. I think that honestly, I think it's something about Carmen. It's so many people's first opera, the one that really makes them see opera differently. And about the habanera specifically, it's something about the minor key. It like the whole aria is just dripping with like this essence that just pulls you in with each note. It's like, it's hypnotic. And then by the time it's over, you just, you realize that you've all of a sudden been hooked on this thing mm. and you didn't realize you were being hooked until you realize that there's a hook in you. <laughs> and I took singing lessons for a little while because I wanted to try to see if I could, you know, make that kind of music and absorb that kind of music. And I wanted to understand opera better, but singing is not in the cards for me. <laughs> so was it the theater of opera that appealed to you? I mean, that too, I don't think it could have been it too. It was more visceral, mm -hmm. but is it the drama, the full spectacle? What appeals to you about opera as an art form? I think that it's, it's such a beautiful combination of so many things. It's a feast for so many of the senses. For one thing, the music is so beautiful from like an, an instrumental perspective and a vocal perspective. There's so much to love and to fall in love with. But then when you're sitting and you're watching, you've got this visual feast of the set and the costumes and the potential for both of those things is infinite. I mean, you, like, the productions that people create, they're so immersive and they pull you into this world, but also, the subject matter. I mean, some of the operas are historical. So when I watch them, I'm actually understanding more about history. Like there's a, a series of operas about three Tudor queens. And so when I watch those, I get smarter. And as I've watched <laughs> operas, I've learned so many life lessons about what not to do, but also how people used to live. And there's, for me, Opera hits my heart in a way that no other art form does in the same way. There's a feeling I get when I watch opera, especially during you know the, some of the climactic ending scenes where it feels like my heart is breaking, but I'm also being filled up at the same time. It's, it's the weirdest feeling and I don't know how to describe it. Oh, I think you just did a beautiful job. Thank you. It's this crazy high, and it's there's so many emotions that you're feeling at the same time. And I think it's this combination of so many elements in tandem with each other that just creates this experience that is unique to opera. Like, you don't see it. I mean, you get an immersive experience when you watch a movie, but it's just, it's just different. Hmm. And the sum is even greater than its parts for you, clearly. I would love to share a story with you about Denise Graves. I so admire her artistry. And the first time I got to speak with her was before an appearance here in Atlanta when she came up to WABE. She wanted to say, before we even began the interview, she wanted to say how grateful she was for radio and for the Met in particular. I don't know if she told you this story. You may have heard, but what she said was that at the age of 15, she lived in public housing, in Washington, D.C. She did not come from means. She was, what do you call, I mean, back then we, we would have said she was going across the dial, you know, just on the radio. She was trying to find something she wanted to listen to. And she stopped when she heard opera. She was so entranced. 
She said she couldn't move. And that's when she said she knew she wanted to become an opera singer. What was all the more remarkable for her is later she learned that it was Leontine Price she was hearing on a Met Opera broadcast. She said, were it not for radio, she would never have had this connection to one of the most meaningful things about her life. Yeah. Wow. Has she told you that? No, that's the first time I'm hearing that story. So the importance of making opera and classical music and great art and dance and theater accessible to everyone is really a a responsibility we should have. And I think that must have been in your little seven-year-old heart when you started your club. Would you tell us about Kids Opera and Art Posse? Yeah, absolutely. I was watching an opera production. We went to one of the broadcasts and I was sitting in the theater. I don't remember which opera it was, but I remember looking around and realizing that I was the only person under 50 or 60 in that theater. And I was by no means a great mathematician, but I realized that by the time I got to that age, everyone else would be gone and I would be the only one in the theater. And I realized that that was not sustainable for the Met. It really disturbed me. I wanted to do something. And so I decided that I would try to figure out a way to get more of my friends into opera. And you know, I was talking about it with one of my aunts and she suggested, oh, well, why don't you start a club? And that had never occurred to me. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. So I started my club. I called it the Kids Opera and Art Posse. And I added the art part because I also really enjoyed going to museums when I was younger. And I realized this, a similar thing when I would walk around museums, they were so empty. And the people that were in it were never my age. And I realized that was not sustainable either. And so I thought about all of the friends that I had, and I thought carefully about which ones I knew either liked opera, liked art, or I thought would be open to trying both, because it was very important to me that I didn't just start this club to be something that my friends and I did after school and just like talked at. I wanted it to be something meaningful for people, and I wanted the people that joined to really give it their all and to really be a part of it. I decided that I wanted to do docent-led tours at the High Museum, which we still do to this day. We do it once a month on Fridays. We go to Metropolitan Opera broadcasts on Saturdays. And once a year, we take a trip up to New York, which is where I am now. Um, And we go and see an opera live in the Opera House. And the first year, I decided that we should all become members of the Met. So we, you know, we wrote Each of us wrote a little letter to the Metropolitan Opera and we decorated the envelope sort of saying like, you know, hi, you know, we're the Kids Opera Dark Posse. We're from Atlanta. We're, you know, we're signing up to be members of the Met. This is why we love it. And at this point, I think the members had seen maybe a couple of operas, maybe one or two or three. So they were able to write a little something. And I wrote an eight page letter writing about why I love the Met and every opera that I'd seen and my reviews of it. (laughs) Oh, wow. And how old were you at this point? I think I was eight years old. And so we, we put them all together in an envelope and we sent them up. And I don't know who at the Met got it, but they showed it to the board and they were like, oh my God, there are these kids in Atlanta and they love this opera house. And oh my gosh. And so the first year we went up to see an opera they rolled out the red carpet for us. They took us backstage. They showed us this, you know, where the sets are made, where the costumes are made, where the wigs are made. We got to meet the general manager. And ever since then, the Met has been so wonderful to our club. They have completely taken us under their wing. And when I go to that opera house, it feels like my second home. And every summer, we also do a a fundraiser called the Ring Cycle Endurance Walk, named after Hogger's (laughs) Ring Cycle. (laughs) And we raise money for the Metropolitan Opera HD Live in Schools program, which works to bring opera to public schools around the U.S. 
So I think for that, we've raised almost $50,000 to date. Wow. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with Atlanta High School senior and ambassador for the Met Opera, Leila Felder. Now, you mentioned the general manager. Peter Gelb has said that you are no less than a prophet for opera. Tell us, how did your association with the Met lead to your becoming a Met ambassador? Oh, so the Met ambassador thing was actually so random in how it happened. My mom and I were sitting in the car at the parking lot of where I used to do karate. And my mom brought it up to me. She was like, well, the um, ambassador for Atlanta is resigning. Would you be interested in being an ambassador? The general manager said that you could if you wanted to. And I thought about it for a second and I didn't really know what that entailed. So I asked and she explained and I just thought, yeah, that sounds super cool. Why not? So I said, yes. And I've been the ambassador for Atlanta ever since. And that's it's just something that I can't remember not doing. And it's such a, for me now, it's become such a, a part of going to see operas. One of my favorite feelings still is going to the movie theaters. And uh, we always get promotional materials that we put out at play settings and we set up a table outside. And so I always go in before the opera starts and I go and set out all of the promotional materials. And they run test footage before the opera and they always run test footage of the same opera. But I love being in the quiet theater with no one there, just me and the opera broadcasts on the movie screen. Because there'd been two years where I hadn't been able to ambassador because, you know, they met shut down. So they weren't doing broadcasts. And so the first fire shut up in my bones was actually, I think, the first HD transmission that I ambassadored for again. I ran into the theater because I could hear opera going from inside and it just, I just sat and I, oh, it just felt so good. It felt so good. <laughs> so you were what, 13 when you became ambassador? I think I may have been younger. I think I may have been around 11 or 12. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about Fire Shut Up in My Bones. It's based on a memoir by the brilliant writer Charles Blow. Can you give us a synopsis? Yes. So the libretto is written by Casey Lemons, wonderful Black librettist, composed by Terence Blanchard, who's a Grammy Award winning trumpet player and composer. And he's done film scores before, but this is his first opera and bravo for a first opera. opera is based on the memoir, which talks about Charles Blow's experience being molested by an older cousin when he was younger. And dealing with that trauma, trying to, you know, first ignoring it or fighting it or just trying to figure out how to keep living his life with that. And so how the opera starts is at 20 years old, his cousin is coming home to visit. And so it starts with Charles about to go home to kill his older cousin with the intent rather to kill his older cousin. And then we go back in time and we see Charles as a kid, what happened and all of his decisions and how he lived his life leading up to that moment. And then at the end, he has the choice to either go forward with the murder or try to find a way to find happiness and, and live his life in a better way. And so if you're curious about how that all works itself out, you gotta go see the opera. <laughs> Existence for a man of my race. A 
these extreme emotions that accompany the story you just explained are so beautifully suited to the broad gestures of opera. The composer, Terence Blanchard, is black, as is the librettist, who is also a brilliant filmmaker, Casey Lemons. And the cast, Will Liverman, Latanya Moore, we have a who's who of opera stars on that stage. I'm one of the things no longer need. Didn't I give you everything? Even what I don't have yet. Even my dreams. The fact that these are black creatives, did that make the experience of this opera resonate for you in a different way? Absolutely, yeah. This opera was only the second time that I've ever seen an all-black cast performed on the opera stage. And it's just such a, a fulfilling moment to see your people on stage to finally see them represented in in this art form that felt like for the longest time it was sort of similar to what was happening in Hollywood for a while. People thought that no one would show up to go and see a movie with an all black cast and then Black Panther happened and, and it blew up. You know, it first happened in the opera world with Corgi and Bess and then again with Fire Shut Up In My Bones. I think more than anything, it makes me so excited for where opera is headed because, you know, we've shown not just the Met, but opera companies around the world that Black people will show up to support Black casts or, you know, many Black people in a cast because we want to be represented and we want to support each other. And I just, I think that this could be something really good for opera because even though Black people wasn't the demographic that a lot of opera houses were going for. They were just going for young people regardless of race. We've shown that we can be a loyal demographic if that's what opera companies want. And that's it's it's exciting for me to I, I'm excited to see where this goes. Well, and it's so long overdue. Yes. Because there has been a tradition of great singing among African-Americans for centuries and the importance of voices in church. And there have been black opera singers since the end of the 19th century. So this is so important. Leila, how are you working towards dismantling the way in which people perceive opera houses, concert halls, and museums. I share your desire to reduce the formality, the elitism that's associated with the arts. How can we work harder at this? I think that there, at least for me, I found two, I think, big ways that makes opera and art and spaces like that more accessible. One is connection. For example, when you walk into a museum, there are placards next to art pieces that explain what the art is about, but they're pretty dry when you read them. And my generation, I mean, if you look at the things that we enjoy doing, I mean, my generation enjoys being on TikTok and that's, you know, it's people sharing themselves and part of their lives with other people. And so when we go to spaces like museums or concert halls or opera houses, we want connection on a little bit more of a, of a human level. And what I found out having someone do docent led tours for us is that it gives people that human element that 
makes art feel a bit closer to them. There's someone to help talk to people and show people some of the beauty in the art and to make it make it feel less scary. It's almost giving someone an intermediary, like, no, it's okay, hold my hand, we're here, it's all right. And then the second thing is how you introduce someone to something like this. It cannot be like underestimated the power of someone's first opera or first art piece. I feel like a lot of times people think that, oh, they're all the same. It doesn't matter which one you go and see first. But for example, for opera, someone's first opera could make or break the way that they see the art form. If you take a beginner to go and see Wagner, they're not going to like it because no. it is so long. It is so heavy and it's so much like that is something that you do after you've had some time enjoying opera and you, mm -hmm. you've built up a love for it so that even if you don't like the Wagner opera, it doesn't wreck opera for you. A good first opera for a beginner would be a light Mozart comedy or a short Puccini drama, like something like La Boheme, something like Carmen, not too dramatic, but you know, dramatic enough to tug at your heartstrings. It has good music, it's got a good movement. And if you start there for opera with people, there's a, a bigger, a better chance that they will enjoy it. And then they'll be more open to coming back and stepping out of their comfort zone and trying something else. And same with art. If you start someone off on some really obscure, uh, kind of hard to understand art, if they're gonna immediately shut down because they look at it and they go, I don't know what it's trying to say. This obviously isn't for me, I'm just going to leave. You have to start a little bit, you know, baby steps. But that should not be confused with dumbing it down for someone because if you dumb it down for people, It'll also make people feel like you're condescending them and that you don't believe that they have the capacity to understand. No. Yeah. People should never be made to feel stupid if they're not familiar with something. And what you were saying about the human element really resonates. I also think what you were saying about the human element and the personal connection in your museum tours... I also think the Met was onto that with the HD presentations because intermission, we're taken backstage. We talk with singers. We hear that they're humans and they speak in our language. All of this is so important. Yeah. Now, you mentioned your love for visual art. You are also an actor <laughs> yes. with a recurring role on the Golden Globe-nominated TV series, The Sinner. What is it like being part of that mystery thriller? Oh, my God. That was so much fun. I was only on season three, but that was my, that was my first TV show appearance, which, what a blessing for a first TV appearance. As soon as I got the audition, I fell in love with the character. She's very different from who I am as a person. She's much more reserved. You know, I'm an introvert, but I would say that I'm a lot more energetic and outgoing than she is. But I could really identify with some of her struggles with expectations and perfectionism. And I was just, I was over the moon when I got the part. And all of my scenes were with Matt Bomer. And he was such a lovely actor to work with. He was quiet, but he acted so well that it made me want to push myself even more to meet his level. And when you make art like that, when you're working with someone that's so good that it makes you want to push yourself, it's such a beautiful environment to be in. And just the, the overall atmosphere of the set too was really lovely. Like you could tell that everyone wanted to be there, was happy to be there. It was a very healthy feeling working environment. And I loved being in New York. It was difficult missing so much school because I was missing basically every other week of school to fly up to shoot. But I managed to keep my grades up, which was good. And I can't wait to get back to working. COVID put a wrench in everything. But yeah, I, I love acting so much. It makes me, acting is all about being human 
And in order to be a good actor, you have to confront a lot of things yourself and work on yourself. And so I feel like as I become a better actor, I also become a better person. And I love that about this craft because it also means that it's something that I will never stop being able to learn about. It's something that will grow with me. And I also love all the skills I get to learn when I do jobs. Like there was one um, indie film that I booked and I had to learn how to do modern dance, which I've never done before. But I love that you get those experiences when you when you book jobs. Oh, wow. Now, I mentioned that you are a senior. Yes. After you graduate from the Atlanta International School in May, what are your plans? Well, I've been accepted to Yale, which is super exciting. So- Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Mazel tov, my goodness. <laughs> and uh, is it the drama school specifically? That's my goal for graduate school. But for undergrad, I'm going to you know Yale College regular. And I want to double major in theater and film and media studies so that I can focus on acting and screenwriting. And while I'm there, I also want to take, um, I've been teaching myself Korean for the past couple of years. So I'm going to finally get to take Korean as a class with people, which is super exciting for me because I can't wait to like talk to people in Korean actually. And then I also want to take either Japanese or Italian. I'm going to take one one semester and the other the other semester to see which one I like better and then go forward with that one as well. Okay, the Italian's kind of a (laughs) no-brainer given your love of opera and the musicality of the language. What sparked your interest in Korean and Japanese? (laughs) I'm I'm sure you've heard of the K-pop wave that's been... Oh, yeah. Yeah, so in ninth grade, I have two friends that had been trying desperately to get me into K-pop and they finally found a group that I liked And that was the beginning of another rabbit hole for me. And at first I told myself, I'm not going to be that person that learns Korean. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to enjoy the music and watch the K-dramas. Fast forward to about six months into me loving Korean culture, I start learning Korean. I think that the language is so beautiful. And for me, language learning comes back to opera (laughs) because I grew up hearing so many different languages always in the context of music so that when I hear people speak other languages I'm never compelled by the usefulness of the language to learn a language I'm always compelled by the musicality in the language when it is spoken to want to learn a language and Korean has a really beautiful music to it when it's spoken it's such a it feels like when you look at the letters, when you hear someone talk, like it all feels like it's wrapped up really neatly into little, kind of into little packages. Mm-hmm. And it has such a warm feeling for me. So that's where the, the love of the Korean language came from. And then Japanese came from anime. <laughs> this is taking us full circle and the beauty of popular culture. Maybe we just you should just say the beauty of culture and not categorize. Yeah. Layla, this has been such a joy. I hope we'll get to speak again. Me too. Thank you so much. I had so much fun and it was so, so fantastic to meet you. I know I said this before, but I've been listening to you on the radio for my entire life. Oh, so I so feel honored. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Layla Felder, Atlanta High School senior, actor, and ambassador for the Met Opera. Great performances at the Met. Fire shut up in my bones. Premieres this Friday on PBS at 9 p.m. That's on WABE-TV tomorrow night at 9. More information is on our website wabe.org Amplifying Atlanta This is WABE
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, so glad to be here with you. And City Lights senior producer, Kim Drobes. Hello, Lois Reitzes. Hello there. So some listeners might remember a little while back, we did a segment for the first time that we are playfully calling Lois Likes, and the effort behind it is... There's so much that you and I have been talking about behind the scenes that just doesn't really have a chance to come up on the show. But personally, as someone who has listened to you for many, many years, I've found it so interesting. And I thought perhaps our listeners would as well. So in an effort to get to know Lois a little better, let's do another Lois Likes. What do you say? I like it. We know that Lois likes movies. But how do you feel about sharing maybe one or two favorite movies of all time? Oh, this is so difficult. That is a hard one. I don't think I could do this one. Well, I have lists. And of course, the first six are Mel Brooks movies. (laughs) You say, of course, but not everyone might know that about you. When did your love for Mel Brooks start? Oh, boy. I was a little kid, I mean, maybe seven, eight years old, when my brother, who was 10 years older than me, had a recording of Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks' The 2,000-Year-Old Man. And what an introduction to history that gave me. I still cherish those pearls of wisdom. And speaking of pearls, he, that is Mel, talked about one of the glories of recent civilization was liquid prell, the shampoo, (laughs) which back in the late 50s, early 60s, there was this commercial where if you put a pearl in it, it floats or, you know, you can watch it dry. That's how thick it was. I digress. Later, I would say the beginning of Mel Brooks's profound impact on me was with his 1967 film, The Producers, which was nothing short of brilliant. It was kind of a spoof of Broadway producers. So much of Mel Brooks's work is steeped in satire. And the basic conceit is... This down-and-out Broadway producer, former Broadway producer, Max Bialystok, played by Zero Mostel, decides if he can raise money in the form of a scam and come out with the most offensive play ever to hit the stage, it will be a flop and he can make off to South America with all the money. Doesn't turn out that way. Although with a musical called Springtime for Hitler, you'd think it could have flopped. (laughs) Anyway, I just was in love with the producers and after that could not get enough of Mel Brooks films. So if I was to put you on the spot, can you give me a favorite Mel Brooks film? Oh, Blazing Saddles. Absolutely. And I felt quite validated, if you will, when there was this very esoteric piece that NPR had in 2014 on Blazing Saddles as a milestone in race relations. Mm. Though there are things about the movie that I wish Mel Brooks had done differently. And I bet There is one aspect in particular that he wishes also 
because though he thought it was understood in context, the mention of a word that doesn't deserve mention is heard in the film. When we look back at any form of art that was produced prior and find problematic things like that. And for this example, in my opinion, beyond problematic, hurtful, right? Yes. How do you reconcile that? I don't know that there is one answer. I think what I have told myself in the instance of Blazing Saddles is that the whole premise of the film is that this African-American man is the ideal sheriff for this little western town. And he brings noble intentions to it, and he encounters the worst of experiences in his first few days out. But eventually, he wins over the town. And I think that Mel Brooks, in his satire, does such a great job of putting the bigotry and the hateful attitudes of the townspeople in high relief. He does that so well that we get the message. Now, off screen, there was also some stuff going on. Mel Brooks wanted Richard Pryor to play the role of Bart, the sheriff, and his use of drugs. At the time, I think there had been an arrest for which he was released. Warner Brothers said they didn't want him as Bart, and Mel Brooks was going to resign. He had written a letter of resignation, and Richard Pryor asked him not to submit it because the studio was willing to let Richard Pryor continue working as a writer on the film. And he told Mel Brooks, I need this money. So he went on with it. But the fact that Mel Brooks was willing to take that step, I thought spoke volumes about him. Very cool. Much as Blazing Saddles and producers are my favorites, there is so much to be said in terms of young Frankenstein and <laughs> space balls, you know, just for his satirical brilliance. I mean, the way he sends up the genres. Well, I know you could talk about Mel Brooks all day, but in the context of movies, is there a favorite movie theater in Atlanta that you enjoy going to? Gosh, I love the Plaza Antons. Oh, me too. I love the marquee. I love the intimacy. I love what Chris Escobar has done with it, making it a not-for-profit organization and gotten it on the historic register. So that would have to be my favorite. I used to like the Garden Hill Cinema as well. I'm not sure if you're old enough to remember that one, Kim. I remember it. I think there was maybe a Fellini's or a LaFont yes. right next door. And that, too, had the feel of a real neighborhood theater. Right on. I love hearing that. Well, Lois, let's do this again and give people a chance to get to know a little more about you in the future, okay? I would love that because I have no shortage of opinions. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hi, my name is Yang. I am an Indian R&B singer-songwriter from Atlanta. I would describe my music very heartfelt and really sensitive. That's what you said to me last time. I guess I'll stay down for the ride. My music comes from a lot of traumatic experiences. As an immigrant, creating the music I do is very healing to me and hopefully healing to others that can relate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got that way to make me feel like I'm wrong all the time. 
I was originally born in India, but I moved here at the age of seven years old. I call Atlanta my home. It's because I've grown up here. I've met all my friends, family, new and old. I've planted roots here. I've learned so much living in such a diverse culture that is Atlanta. The first song I sent is something that is already released and that you can listen to. It's called Everything Is Alright. I made this song in the height of COVID. I made it during an existential crisis as an artist. It's also a form of release for me from my fears and doubts I had of myself and the relationship that I had with music and love. I grew up in a very musical family. My father and mother would always play the guitar and we would have huge family gatherings and sing the oldies and just super famous songs from the 70s and 80s like uh, Hotel California, the Bee Gees, a lot of uh, Credence Clearwater Revival, just a lot of old school and we just wouldn't have a family gathering without music. so. That's definitely an influence in my journey as an artist. The second song that I sent is called Love Me and that's one of the most recent songs that I've created and is due for release very soon. And the story behind that is just toxicity and codependency in a relationship with somebody that you should probably not be with. I would say my friends motivate me the most. I feel the closest when we can share things about each other in safe spaces and I feel like my music kind of happens to be a part of that a lot. In terms of inspiration, what inspires me the most would probably be joy. That could be joy in the smallest things, like taking a walk with my dog or my daily routine, daily practices that keep me grounded, taking baths, uh, meditation, even just sitting in the grass with my face towards the sun on the ground. The simple pleasures always inspire me the most out of anything else. Singer-songwriter Yang and our series speaking of music. More information about Yang and her work is on our website, wabe.org. A pillar of Atlanta's visual art community, Lucinda Bunnin died last Sunday. She was an acclaimed fine art photographer, collector, and philanthropist. 
a lifelong learner and colorful personality, Bunnett donated more than a thousand photographs from her personal collection and established the High Museum's first dedicated photography gallery. Lucinda Bunnett was 92. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture, tomorrow at 11 a.m. Atlanta artist and Georgia State University Distinguished Professor Pam Longobardi shares her environmental love and concerns in the new exhibition Oceans Gleaning. Plus, jazz trumpeter and singer Joe Granston tells us about his upcoming summer jazz camp at Callenwold Fine Arts Center. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.